Okay. Hello and welcome to Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again dive into the world of ethics as we give a crash course in ethical decision making, beginning with a discussion and a few questions to make you reflect on what you value when making a decision. We will then move to discuss three major ethical theories, teleological, deontological, and virtue ethics. So, If you ever wondered how athletes like Barry Bonds and Lance Armstrong could justify taking PEDs, or how an athletic director might use ethics when making budgetary decisions, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. In past podcasts, we've tackled the topics of ethics in sports by discussing the use of performance-enhancing drugs and the difference between gamesmanship and cheating. We began those podcasts by discussing the definition of ethics and why it's so important that we understand ethics and morals in general, but also in the business and sports context. Today, what I want to do is get back into our discussion of sport ethics, but instead of focusing on a specific ethical question like the use of PEDs in sports, I want to focus on a few ethical principles that can be used when you're trying to make an ethical decision either at work, in life, or, as we'll hit on today, as a sport manager. Remember, ethics is the systematic study of values that guide individual decision making. The consequence of this study is the determination of a set of theories or principles that regulates right and wrong in a societal setting, such as business or sport. The difficult part of ethics, though, is that the determinations that are made about what is right and wrong are fluid, and oftentimes we are just as concerned with the process an individual uses to make a decision as the decision itself. This is because ethics is as much a conversation and discussion as anything else. And key to that conversation is the different ethical principles that we use when making decisions. Now, it is important to note that no one method is unanimously accepted. Consequently, there is generally no single right or wrong answer to ethical questions. But before we break down the methods that we might use to make an ethical decision, let's think and begin with a few basic questions. And the answer that you come up with to these questions will hopefully start to get you to start to think about how you process and make ethical decisions. Let's begin with a fairly easy one. Do you think people act primarily out of self-interest or can people be genuinely concerned with the welfare of others? In other words, when you're trying to make a decision, maybe at work or with your family, is part of your decision how that outcome or the action will affect you? Or are you able to put yourself aside and make a decision based on the welfare of other people over your own welfare? The second question I have for you is, do you believe that people behave morally out of a sense of duty or a sense of moral obligation? And if you do think so, are moral standards universal or are they culturally based and relative? So again, think about a decision that you might have to make at work or one with your friends or when you're around your family. 
When you're making that decision, you're deciding what to do. Is part of that decision some level of moral obligation that you feel to do the right thing or to act a certain way? And if you do feel that, do you think how you approach that or what you feel is the right thing, do you think that's universal to everyone on earth? Or do you think that's something that's based in your own culture and your own upbringing? And then finally, I want you to consider are ethical decisions simply based on individual subjectivity? In other words, is how you approach a situation, regardless of your answer to the first two, going to be different than someone else? Now, both the good and sometimes people feel bad thing about these ethical questions is that they've never really been answered in a complete and satisfactory way. Yet, by posing them and making you reflect on them for yourself, and by trying to arrive at some reasonable answer to them, you should be able to start to understand and appreciate and navigate ethical decision making. So, the question you might be asking yourself after I just posed these three to you, and after I just said that there is no complete or satisfactory or right answer, is if there is no right answer, then why do we even study these methods in the first place? Well, the point of posing these types of questions and pointing out that there is no right or wrong answer is not to try to confuse you or discourage you, but rather to make you recognize some of the basic thought processes that help guide ethical judgments and decisions you make. Because, and this is key, many of you might not know why you think that people can be generally concerned for others, or why you think that people act out of a sense of duty or moral obligation. All you know is that when I asked your question, you thought that. But in ethics, that is not enough. It's not enough just to know what you think. You have to know why you think it. Because why you think or believe something drives your actions, even when you're not aware of it. With that said, there are three main categories of ethical theories that I want to talk about today. Or, in other words, there are three main ways we talk about decision-making processes in ethics. And that is teleological, deontological, and virtue ethics. And today, I want to focus on all three of these and provide a little bit of a crash course to get you starting to understand how we go about having conversations about ethics and hopefully to shine some light on your own process of making ethical decisions. Let's go ahead and begin with the teleological approach to ethics. Now, the word teleological comes from the Greek words teleos, which means end or goal, and logos, which means science. In teleological ethics, the goal is to promote what is good or desirable, and thus the best course of action, or should I say the ethical action, is the one that results in the most good. Another way to think about this is how Regis University defines the term. They say, under this theory, quote, the rightness or wrongness of actions is based on the goodness or badness of the consequences of those actions. So the major question with the teleological view of ethics is, what is good? Well, Desensian Rosenberg note, quote, good is concerned with the morally good properties of human behavior, as well as states such as pleasure and experiences of beauty, both of which are thought to be intrinsically good things, end quote. So using this definition of good and paying particular attention to the idea of intrinsically good things or things that are inside us, things like positive emotions, 
we can add other outcomes that we might consider good. Things like joy or happiness or love or feelings of self-fulfillment. The problem with this, and hopefully you're beginning to see this, is that since we're dealing with intrinsic things, what is good for one person might not be good for another. Think of it this way. What I might find beautiful, you might think is ugly. What brings me happiness might not cause you anything but sadness. And thus, what is good, this fundamental idea of teleological ethics, is really ambiguous. So, how do scholars and academics deal with this ambiguity? They use an amoral understanding of the word. That probably makes you think, well, what does it mean to be amoral? Well, amoral literally means lacking a moral sense, or in other words, being unconcerned with the rightness or wrongness of something. Remember, from our definition of ethics, rightness deals with the process of doing something. Rightness is the concept of duty, the concept of which action we ought to take. Ever heard the saying, do the right thing? Well, what does that actually mean? That you should do something because it is right. You should take the right action regardless of what the outcome might be. More on that later. But in teleological ethics, we're not concerned with the duty or process of getting to something. We're only concerned with the end. We're only concerned with the good. We're only concerned with the intrinsically good things that come out of an action. This doesn't mean that we ignore the action entirely. Rather, think of it like it's a scale. As long as the outcome brings more good than the action brings bad, then it's considered ethical. As long as the outcome outweighs the means used to achieve it, then it is considered an ethical action. This might seem contradictory to downplay the action and focus primarily on the result, but teleological ethics is based on the idea of trying to maximize the good outcomes of an action. To really drive this point home, let's look at an example. Let's say that I make the claim that people should pursue healthy activities to try to reduce healthcare costs then the idea that being healthy is good in and of itself might be established in an amoral sense. So the question is, why is the statement healthy is good in itself considered amoral? That's because being healthy in and of itself is concerned with the idea of what is right, i.e., I don't care if you are healthy or not, or I don't care if being healthy is right or wrong. All that I'm truly concerned with is lowering healthcare costs. In other words, I care that you pursue healthful activities because it will reduce costs. That's the outcome. I don't care that you should be being healthy because it's good in and itself because that's the process. And so that process, we consider that to be that amoral thing. I don't concern myself with it. All I truly concern myself with is the outcome of reducing cost. Put it another way. A teleologist would claim two things. First, that an individual has a moral obligation to promote whatever amoral good is deemed worthwhile. In other words, whether the process used to get that good thing is right or wrong, it doesn't matter. The second thing that a teleologist would claim is that on balance, one should seek the greatest measure of this good over its possibilities, i.e. all that matters is the outcome and whether that outcome is producing the greatest amount of good that it possibly can. So the easiest way to think about teleological ethics is that it is results-oriented. 
To really drive this home, let's look at some examples that we might see of teleological theory in sports. Let's start with one that's a common saying, no harm, no foul. This is a teleological view. Why? Because it's results-oriented. It's concerned not with the actions, maybe hitting someone after a play in football or cheap-shotting someone in soccer. It's not concerned with those actions. It only focuses on the outcome. It says that as long as you don't harm someone, as long as you don't break their bone or hurt them or cut them, as long as you don't do that, then whatever action you take is fine and you haven't done anything wrong. Or how about this saying in sports, win at all costs? And we actually use this in the business world too. Again, this mindset focuses only on the outcome or the result of winning. And we don't care how you go about doing it. All we care about is that you achieve it. The process used to win in this sense doesn't matter. So if you cheat, if in baseball you're a pitcher and you're juicing the ball, or in boxing if you hit someone below the belt, or in basketball if you engage in a strategy like hack a shack, in those situations the teleological view would say that it doesn't matter. All that matters is that you won. And if you won, then what you did to achieve that victory would be considered ethical. In other words... Whenever you weigh the benefits and the costs of some action or inaction when confronted with an ethical problem, the teleologist focuses on the consequences of the actions and will choose the action that will lead to the most good being achieved, regardless of whether the action is right or wrong in and of itself. As you can imagine, the teleological ethical view isn't as easy as just picking the action that leads to the greatest good because, as I previously noted, what is good is complicated, and oftentimes disputes and arguments erupt around this. For some, the only good worth pursuing is that which fulfills one's own personal interests, needs, and desires, while for others, the only good they strive for is that which brings the most pleasure to the greatest number of people possible. The former is a subset of teleological theory called egoism, and egoism is the ethical view that subscribes to the idea of self-interest. An individual who subscribes to egoism as their ethical base says that an action that results in an intrinsic good for themselves is justified. So if you cheat in a sporting contest, as long as you win and that brings you personal satisfaction, then it is ethical. Barry Bronze is a prime example of this. Remember from our ethical podcast on PEDs and cheating that using drugs like steroids or other substances to improve your performance is considered by most a form of cheating and thus a lot of people consider it to be unethical. However, using drugs is an action, it's not an outcome. Teleologists are concerned with the outcomes. As long as the outcome does more good than bad, then they would consider it to be ethical. Egoism goes a step further and defines good as personal pleasure, personal satisfaction, personal happiness. So Barry Bonds has gone on record in the past saying that in 1998, he saw Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa battling to beat the single season home run record. And he thought, hey, wait, I know I'm better than these guys, yet they're gaining more press than me. People are talking about them as MVPs, as being some of the best players ever. And that's not right, because the only reasons that they're being deemed better, which is the outcome of interest, is because they're using PED, which is the process or the action. 
So the process Bonds was using to train to be great was not yielding the best outcome. So he decided to do what McGuire and Sosa were doing and change his process, take steroids, so he could get better results, so he could get the personal accolades, the press, so he could feel happier, so he could be more satisfied. The process of using drugs that were illegal didn't matter because the good that came from breaking the law and the rules of baseball outweighed it. In this same light, Lance Armstrong can be thought about. Remember, he broke the rules of cycling and took PEDs, not to help his racing team or help others, but to win the Tour de France, to be famous, to become rich, to make himself happy. Both he and Bonds might use egoism to try to justify their actions. Because they might say that the happiness and good that resulted from the actions they took outweighed the amoralness of what they did. Now, just because the actions of Bonds and Armstrong would be thought by as most as negative or illegal even, that doesn't mean that all individuals who subscribe to egoism as their ethical base are going to be taking actions that are unethical. For example, a person might save a drowning child because he wants to be recognized as a hero or because he enjoys the challenges of high-risk situations. The actions of saving the child is a great thing, and most people would applaud that. But with egoism, the motivation is what matters. And as I said, this individual is motivated by being recognized as a hero, or maybe because, like I said, they enjoy the challenge of that situation. And because of that, because that motivation is of self-interest, that individual, just like Bonds, just like Armstrong, is not driven by the action itself, but by the result of that action and that what's in it for me type of mentality. So the criticisms of egoism are pretty self-evident, but one of the ones you might not have thought about is that as the belief that all actions are motivated by selfish interest, by nature, if we believe that, then it negates the alternative idea, which is the concept of altruism or the idea that some acts are selfless or some acts are even self-sacrificing. Which brings us to our second subset of teleological ethics, utilitarianism, which, unlike egoism, claims the only good worth pursuing is pleasure or happiness. And it claims that the only moral duty we have is to try to promote or create as much happiness as possible. The beliefs of utilitarianism go something like this. Happiness is usually considered the totality of different pleasures. And since pain is the opposite of pleasure, it is bad. Therefore, by removing or reducing pain, we increase pleasure. And increasing pleasure then promotes happiness. Creating more happiness creates more good, not just for you, but for everyone. As the scholar Pepper noted in talking about utilitarianism, quote, the goodness of an act depends on its giving the greatest happiness to the greatest number of people, end quote. In this way, utilitarianism accounts for the pleasure of everyone and holds that one person's happiness is just as important as the next person's happiness, which is unlike egoism, because remember, egoism claims that you only care about your own happiness. Therefore, in utilitarianism, actions that produce the greatest benefit are correct, and those that create harmful effects are to be avoided or are considered unethical. Let's look at an example of a decision-making process in sport management that demonstrates these theories. 
So suppose you are an athletic director who has $10,000 in your budget for locker room renovations. You can do one of two things. You can spend all $10,000 on the football team's locker room and put in a sauna, 50-inch flat screen TV, and a new Xbox. Or you could put $5,000 into the football team's locker room and put in just a sauna, no new TV, no Xbox, and then put the other $5,000 into the women's soccer locker room and get them a sauna as well. If you were that athletic director, what action would you take? Using teleological ethics, remember, we are not concerned with the action itself. We're concerned with the consequence or the outcome of the action. Egoism would say we should choose whichever action will benefit you the most. So maybe you believe that if you spend $10,000 on the football team, the team will be able to recruit better players and they'll win more games and they'll help you keep your job. So if you believe that, then you might choose option A using egoism. Or maybe you think that splitting up the money would benefit you because you'll be able to get positive press coverage for looking out for both the men and the women. So because of that positive outcome that you value, that benefits you, egoism would say you would choose that. In the end, though, you would select whichever action that created the greatest outcome for you if you subscribe to the teleological ethical view of egoism. Now, using utilitarianism, the actions you take is pretty straightforward. You would select to renovate both the men's and the women's room rather than just one. Why? Because while option one might create more happiness in the men's team, if you spend $5,000 on both the men's football team and the women's soccer team, you're able to create the greatest level of happiness for the most people. More athletes would be served by what you were doing and benefit more, their outcome would be better. So in this example, Both egoism and utilitarianism can come out with the same solution. But using egoism, you might arrive at the outcome of giving all the money to just the football team. So I like this example because it demonstrates how we can take these theories of ethical decision making and apply them to a challenge that an individual face in the world of sport management. And while hearing this example and the justification for doing something, you might say that utilitarianism seems so much better than egoism, but utilitarianism is not without its critics. And oftentimes, those critics point to the fact that deciding how to measure the result of a particular decision to determine if it will promote the most happiness is really difficult. Critics of the theory have also pointed out that simply on utilitarian grounds, you could conceivably lie, cheat, or steal, because even though some people might be hurt, as long as the action leads to the greatest happiness for more people than you're harming, then it can be considered ethical. So to try to help curve some of these thought processes, utilitarianists began to make distinctions between what they called act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism. In act utilitarianism, the act is morally right if and only if it produces at least as much happiness as any other act that that person could perform at that time. Now, this is compared to rule utilitarianism that takes the rules or the laws of society into account. Rule utilitarianists say the act should be in accordance with a moral rule that 
creates the most happiness. Thus, regardless of the good that killing an evil dictator might do, since the act itself is in violation of the law, then we have to consider it when we are making a distinction between the good that is done and the harm that is done. So what if after hearing all these teleological ethic theories, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, yes, all of this sounds great, but I'm not sure that it applies to me. I'm not sure that I take into account the outcome of a situation more than I take into account the action when I'm trying to make a decision. Well, that's okay, because in reality, many of us feel an obligation to act a certain way because, you know, we just know it's the correct thing to do. And we even have a series of generally accepted maxims or sayings that we use oftentimes to guide our behavior, saying such as, you should always keep your promises or tell the truth or respect others, respect your parents or many others. But with each of these sayings, what we're talking about is no longer the outcome of an action. We're now moving to talk about the action itself. That means we're moving to talk about a completely different theory within ethics, a theory that was proposed in the 1700s by an individual named Immanuel Kant. And Kant believed that ethics has nothing to do with satisfying some type of identified end, and thus that this idea of teleological theories were completely wrong. Instead, he believed that it all had to do with duty and obligation of an action. Thus, he created something called deontological ethics, which comes from the Greek word deon, which means duty. Now, for a person who subscribes strictly to deontology, to them, it does not matter whether the consequences of a behavior are good or bad. The only thing that matters is that individuals adhere to a well-accepted, well-established set of moral standards. In other words, unlike the result-oriented views of teleological ethics, deontological ethics maintains something is only ethical if the actions someone take are righteous. To go back to the Bonds and Armstrong argument we set up earlier, based on egoism, which is a subset of teleological ethics, we said Bonds and Armstrong could both make an argument that taking PEDs was ethical because the results of taking them was improved performance, which brought them happiness amongst a number of other positive outcomes. But using deontological ethics, we don't care about that outcome of taking PEDs. We don't care that it brought them happiness, that it brought them good results. We only care about the action itself. And since the action of taking PEDs violated established moral standards, that is, that we should follow the rules and obey the laws and play fair, because it violated that, then we would deem the action unethical. Let's look at even a simpler example to really drive this home. Imagine your girlfriend or boyfriend ask if they look fat in their new pair of pants, and they do actually look fat. What do you do? How do you answer? Do you tell a white lie and say, no, you look great? Or do you tell the truth and tell them that they don't? Well, how you answer this very simple hypothetical question really will start to shine some light if you are more teleological or deontological. A deontologist would not take into account the outcome, but rather only consider that intrinsically 
they know they should not lie. So you wouldn't worry about the potential outcome that if you told the truth, it could hurt their feelings or lower the self-esteem or cause an argument. Instead, under deontology, you would hold true to your never lie value and you would be honest with your significant other. On the other hand, teleological ethics would take into account that in telling the truth, you're going to cause harm. You're going to cause hurt feelings. You're going to cause lower self-esteem. And because the goal of teleological ethics is to eliminate harm or reduce it, or in other words, to create happiness, the teleologists would go ahead and lie. They would tell that small white lie because the action doesn't matter to them, only the consequence, only the outcome does. This is obviously an oversimplification, and there are many other outcomes and factors that we could talk about in this example. But hopefully it starts to show you at least a little how we can use both approaches with an ethical decision making to come at two completely different outcomes. And it hopefully shows you a little bit about how you might be starting to think. But back to deontological theory. Just like there are other theories that we discussed, the deontological approach to ethics is not without its issue. Primary amongst these issues is where do these intrinsic principles or where does our sense of duty originate? Some deontologists appeal to a divine command of God or some type of supreme being. Others claim that the moral superiority of certain rules or actions is just known through institutions. But one of the most common places or principles or senses of duty that we have, at least within Western society, is the golden rule talked about in both the Bible and the Quran. And the golden rule, depending on which text you use, says something to the extent of love thy neighbor as thyself or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Notice that this moral belief is built entirely on actions loving thy neighbor. Love is an action. Do unto others. That is an action. So this whole moral belief is built entirely on the actions a person should take and not the outcomes from those actions, which this leads to one of the major issues of using the golden rule as a moral base for deontological ethics. And that is, what if the way you prefer to be treated is not the way that you ought to be treated? For example, You would prefer not to receive a parking ticket. But if you clearly break the law and park in a no-parking zone, getting a parking ticket is rightly what you deserve. So the police officer is going to give you a ticket. Even though they wouldn't want a ticket if the situation were reversed, they're not doing on to you as they wish they would have done to them. Instead, they're doing what ought to be done. The idea of capital punishment also points this out. If you follow the golden rule for ethical decision-making, you can defend capital punishment by claiming that some death row inmates agree that they should be killed for their crimes. And further, even if an inmate doesn't think they should be killed for their crimes, the Christian basis of the rule comes from the Bible, and the Bible addresses retribution and just punishment. However, on the contrary... Those who oppose the death penalty can also point to the golden rule and argue that loving one's neighbor as thine self means expressing reverence for human life and other forms of punishment are more just. So what's the problem with the application of the golden rule to this notion of capital punishment? Well, the same ethical concept just gave us two completely opposite answers. This, in one way, is a major weakness with the theory of deontological ethics. 
So we've proposed two overarching theories, deontological ethics and teleological ethics. Both of these we've pointed to issues. The question you might be asking is, is there an alternative to these theories? And the answer is yes. There's a third major subset within ethics called virtue ethics. Virtue ethics note that you should act as a virtuous person would in a given situation. So how you act at work might be different than how you might act in front of your friends, or that might be different than how you act in front of your family. Why? Because the setting has changed. So what is appropriate or okay or virtuous in one situation might be different than in another situation. Unlike theories of duty that insist on a clear definition between right and wrong that we saw in deontological ethics, virtue ethics presume that most often there is no absolute answer that can be given when faced with moral problems. That is, rather than focus on questions like what rules ought we follow or what principles are needed to discern between right and wrong or what is the outcome that brings us the greatest pleasure, Virtue ethics emphasizes the idea that a virtuous character is all that is needed to arrive at a sound and ethical judgment. That brings the question, well, what are virtues? Virtues are behaviors showing high moral standards. And it's probably put best in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy in their description of virtues when they say, quote, a virtue is an excellent trait of character. It is a disposition well entrenched in its possessor, something that, as we say, goes all the way down. To possess virtue is to be a certain sort of person with a certain complex mindset. A significant aspect of this mindset is the wholehearted acceptance of the distinctive range of consideration as reasons for action, end quote. Virtues are synonymous with things like goodness, morality, trustworthiness, purity, and nobleness. The key principle to virtue ethics is that the individual should strive to develop good virtues. This will then lead them to make the right decision and act ethically in a given situation and thus lead to outcomes of happiness for themselves. So there you have it. A crash course in the three major types of ethics, teleological, deontological, and virtue ethics. Hopefully this podcast has not only taught you a little about each of these theories and this process of ethical decision making and showed you how it can be applied to the world of sport and sport management, but also got you to start to think a little about your own ethical views. Though none of these theories are right or wrong. In sports, Professor Russell Goh noted, quote, most ethical problems in sport could be resolved if individuals were to take seriously the idea of developing excellent character. How do we do that? We work to strengthen our abilities and improve on our weaknesses. We practice empathy when other people make mistakes and bad decisions because we can learn from them and we can help others improve as well. And we find and follow good role models, virtuous people we admire and respect in our everyday lives. If we do those things, regardless if we're more likely to lean towards teleological, deontological, or virtue ethics, we're developing virtues within ourselves that can only lead to better outcomes. With all that said, if you have any questions about the ethical theories presented here today or their application to sport, please feel free to shoot us a message on Instagram at the sport professor. Check out our page and give us a follow and stay up to date on our latest podcasts and what's happening in the world of sport management. Today, we really only scratched the surface of ethics and ethical decision-making, but we will dive into it again more in-depth in the future. 
Until then, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.